Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Brandon Monroe for our weekly catch up in the world of uranium. Uh, we discussed initially Trump's administration ending the Iranian sanctions waivers that currently allow Russia, China and European companies from UK, Germany and France to work on sensitive Iranian nuclear sites. I suspect there will be some pushback there. We discuss what those items could be. We also look at the EIA Uranium Marketing Annual Report. Some numbers in there that people were not expecting to see. We, are, we discuss why that might be the case and what the implications are for the market, especially for US equities. Finally, we discuss the House Republicans introducing a measure that would speed up permitting and mining projects in the US. And again, what the implications are for US equities. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, Brandon, how are you doing, sir? Yeah, I'm well, Matt. What about you? Yeah, yeah, good. You're up, you're up at the cottage, I can tell. Up in the mountains. Yeah, so we've had builders down here, so it's been lots of banging and clanging and soaring today. So I'm very pleased to be using this machine instead of all of the other stuff. Fantastic, fantastic. And, and maybe pick up some bottles of wine while you're there. It, the, it is in the right region for that, yeah, it, if we were to run short. Right. Well, look, I think that the line is good for now uh, whilst you're out on the sticks. Um, so we better take advantage of it and kind of rush straight into this. And plus, I'm sure you want to get uh, stuck into uh, your Friday night. So a few things happened this week. Um, I've got to start with the big one. Mr. Trump uh, and Mr. Pompeo have made an announcement with regards to the uh, Iran sanctions uh, waiver. So what's your take on that move of theirs? So... I think a little bit of background, we're talking about the Iran sanctions waiver. Back in 2015, the JCPOA, the Joint Cooperative uh, Parties of Agreement, agreement was signed. So we talked about that when I was in London. So maybe in the show notes, we can put some of the details for people on that. At the end of last year in November, the Trump administration ceased the waivers in respect of the Fordell enrichment plant, which at the time was an easy one for them to stop the waivers on because, you know, it was a built into a mountain, deliberately concealed and uh, had the potential to be reconfigured for weapons grade enrichment. At the time, there was a bit of a scramble and a couple of days after that event, uh, Sergei Lazarov, the Russian uh, foreign minister, confirmed that Russia would stand by Iran. And then a couple of weeks later, they said, oh, look, because of technical reasons, we can no longer provide any support to Fodau. So that's how the last little mini crisis here was resolved. What we've seen now is the Secretary of State refused to grant any further waivers in respect of three of the remaining four nuclear uh, facilities in Iran. And the only one that remains, importantly, is the Bushir nuclear power plant, which is being built by Rosatom and others. So they've granted a 60-day sort of um, cool-off period in which any companies, any European or US or other companies that are involved in those can basically wind down their support for those uh, programs before the sanctions start to kick in. And then there's been a 90-day waiver granted in respect to the Bashir nuclear power plant. So 
that's the background. Now, in terms of implications, uh, it will depend on how much of Rosatom's different divisions are involved in those other three activities. My understanding is there isn't an awful lot. The big one is the Bashir nuclear power plant. That's a signature project by Rosatom. Um, we've talked before about how Rosatom has the lion's share of nuclear plant exports at the moment and their $133 billion forward order book. And this is just another example of how they're very effectively built nuclear power plants uh, outside of Russia and even outside of the former Soviet sphere of influence. They aren't going to want to give that up. And I think the Trump administration is astute enough to realize that if they were to put that jewel in the Russian crown at risk, well, then we really do have a big problem here. And I think just to remind the listeners, the problem here is that Rosatom still provides a, a significant proportion of the enriched uranium product, the EUP, that is required for the US nuclear power plants and European for that matter. So it's in the order of 20 to 25% for the US and a little bit more for uh, Euratom, the EU power plants. And that's higher because of former um, Soviet sphere of influence countries like Czech Republic and Hungary and so on. So that would be really serious, difficult news for the US nuclear fleet and the EU nuclear fleet. If all of a sudden, uh, let's call it in 90 days time, those uh, utilities no longer had access to that Russian enriched uranium. And there's other um, Russian nuclear supplies that are important as well, but that's the main one. So, so what's the workaround here for the US? Because obviously they're making demands of uh, the countries and companies uh, working in Iran, um, being um, Germany, France, UK, Russia through Rosatom and China. And they're obviously threatening um, sanctions to anyone who breaks, you know, breaks that um, that agreement. Uh, so, so continues to work with Iran, should I say? So, the US has got to ha come up with some kind of workaround because Russia is just so. You know, I, th I heard a Russian senator this week say um, that obviously they disagree with uh, Trump's move, Pompeo's move. Um, they think that this will actually drive the Iranians to. Um, build a nuclear weapon because you know things are tough in Iran. Sanctions are, are you know very very severe as it is, um, and there's a lot of tension um, you know with regards to the relationship between Iran and, and the U.S. So, if Russia sides with Iran, can it can it also work with the U.S.? There's two workarounds. The one workaround which will be driven outside of the U.S is that the various players who are involved in the three facilities that will uh, no longer be granted sanctions waivers will need to withdraw. So that would effectively be a repeat of what we saw with the Fordow plant when uh, the Russian interests uh, gracefully withdrew on a technicality. The alternative workaround, which is still the one that I think from a world peace point of view and a stability and a non-proliferation point of view is the favoured one, is the US and the Trump administration use this leverage that they've got to try and renegotiate the JCPOA or a replacement. That's what the other parties to that agreement are calling for. That's what they've wanted for quite some time. And it might just be that this additional pressure now, particularly on Russian interests and to a lesser extent Chinese interests, 
will help to bring Iran to the table in such a way that a workable solution can be obtained. Um, what we saw from last time is that I don't think we should hold high hopes for that. Uh, it seems to have been a signature po uh, foreign policy for the Trump administration as, as we get closer to the elections. I'm not sure that this is the type of um, outcome that would please the more hawkish ends of their support base. So I, I would very much like to see an outcome along those lines, but I'm not particularly optimistic about it. Obviously, uh, Pompeo and Mnuchin have been at loggerheads over this topic. There's this sort of doves and the hawks uh, 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 battle yet again on another topic. Um, but, you know, this, the tensions are high between the US and Iran, as we've said. You know, with the killing of Soleimani, the, the Iranian general, um, you know, there was some retaliation at the US base. Uh, there's, 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 a, there's a lot going on in the region, which perhaps the, the Russians are better suited to try and resolve, are they not? Because this, this is a very sensitive, we always, keep, we always talk about geopolitical sensitivity of the topic, and you know, this is you know, prima facie a case in point here for us. You know, the, the US is interfering with other people's ability to generate energy. Quite, quite right. So yes, I think Russia does have the influence to be in the best position to resolve this, but it will require a degree of compromise from the US side as well. Uh, Russia needs to be able to resolve this whilst retaining face itself and not being seen as simply cratering to a, a strong arm or hawkish US position here. So without a degree of that compromise, I think it's very unrealistic to think that Russia will compromise. Um, unilaterally. And unfortunately, that just leaves the Iranian citizens caught in the middle. And, and as well as the assassination or the, um, the death uh, of the Iranian general, it, we've also seen tensions high with Iran in the world spotlight, receiving a fair bit, I think, of sympathy in relation to the compounding detrimental effect of US sanctions at the time of COVID. Uh, I think they've used that channel of communication quite effectively. Um, the US would call it propaganda and there's always an element of that. But I think there's a number of um, parties internationally who are thinking that maybe hardline sanctions uh, are not really the humanitarian approach when a country's on its knees because of a pandemic. So maybe that will find its way into this calculation at the same time. I find it quite interesting at the moment. Again, the geopolitical component here. You've got the you know you've got the British, the Germans, the French, who have one view against the Americans and say we you know we will issue sanctions against anyone who who doesn't follow our lead. And it's such a small market. The Iranian market is such a small. It's very important, obviously, but it's a very small market. And you know to you know stand up to the U.S. over such what is insignificant amounts of money which may be detrimental on other much bigger projects, that's, you know, that, that's a big call for these countries to have to make, either individually or collectively as the EU. Um, China, on the other hand, they don't care, do they? I'm sure they care. There's no question this is very, very important to them and their nuclear export ambitions are uh, enormously strategic to China. But whilst they do care, they aren't at the same sort of commercial risk that Rosatom and the Russian interests are. China imports very little nuclear fuels into the US. A number 
of their suppliers are already on US sanctions lists. So it doesn't make a big difference to them. They haven't yet significantly cracked the EU uh, import market for nuclear fuels. And China's main focus at the moment is domestically. And they will try, as they have in many other industries, to perfect the nuclear fuel chain and the nuclear power cycle internally and domestically before they turn their focus to exports. So they don't have as much skin in this particular game. But what I'd say, Matt, is your point about this being a small but very important cog in a bigger wheel is very true and it certainly escalates the risks here. We've got an industry that's still worth very small amounts relative to other industrial interests and certainly relative to military expenditure and other geopolitical um, large cogs that we've got at play here. So that puts America probably more at risk than Russia in this situation. If Ros Adam was to say, look, we've uh, invested in our foreign policy that's based on being a reliable party here, and we agreed to build Bushia nuclear power plant, and if in 90 days the Trump administration says that's off the sanctions list as well, I think we could easily see a scenario where Russia says our priority is our firm commitments with our uh, foreign policy partners, including Iran. And if that means that we have to suffer commercial losses into the US and potentially the EU as well, in the grand scheme of things, that is something that Russia certainly could bear as a nation. And Ros Adam being an apparatus of state, they of course would uh, have to toe the line in terms of what Russia's strategic interests dictate. Um, that's a difficult situation for the sector, but in particular, it's a difficult situation for the US. And if it escalated further, then I could well see a scenario where Russia um, puts its arm around Kazakhstan and says, right, you know, you've got to remember where your allegiances are here. And that's something that was made um, in different ways as part of the Section 232 investigation. And whilst it wasn't specifically named in the working group, I think reading between the lines, you can see that uh, there is a vulnerability there. And look, if Ros Adam lost $20 billion because of all of this, again, just in the scheme of things and what this actually means for foreign policy for decades to come, um, that's a standoff that I think Russia would be prepared to take. And it would only really be at the cost of US and EU utilities. Well, like, I, I, I think for fear of being dragged into a, a kind of political discussion, um, we, we probably better go um, elsewhere. Um, a source of interesting commentary here, because I think the, the EU or European countries are keen to get some sort of you know, peaceful resolution. And as you say, there's a kind of, you know, sort of softening in, in their stance with regards to in these difficult times, because Iran has not got the infrastructure or system to deal with COVID-19, um, that perhaps we should be looking for you know new ways to have these com conversations. Because you know if you keep treating a country and, the, and unfortunately the poor bystanders of, of that country a certain way, unless you're expecting some kind of collective Stockholm syndrome, I think the resentment just builds and builds. Um, so it's a kind of um, there's a conversation that needs to, needs to happen, and hopefully that gets resolved for the sake of you know the ordinary people there. Um, look, let, let's 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 get onto the kind of commercial component here, which is what are the implications now? Because one of the other notes that came out this week was we and, and it kind of reflects on what follows on from 
um, something we talked about last week with regards to you know Republicans and bipartisan um, submission. Um, some House Republicans have introduced um, a measure which would speed up the mining process in the U.S. When you kind of and obviously we're talking uranium, so I think uranium companies, um, let's, let's talk about the impact on, or what they hope the impact will be of that. Well, the, the first thing to say about that, in common with our conversation last week, is that there was a lot of criticism about the report from the Nuclear Fuel Working Group, that it wasn't specific enough, that it was too rhetoric-based and so forth. And we saw it as a policy document, and now two announcements really in two weeks following that report that go very much to the heart of what that report was driving at. So the US administration is very keen to demonstrate that whilst the report might have been big on rhetoric and small on action, the actions are flowing and presumably they'll continue to flow. So that's the first thing um, that I think is important and significant here. The second thing I'd say, which is similar to what I said last week is, this doesn't come as a surprise. It did have a significant gestation period. And the administration, with the help of the US uranium producers, has been analysing these issues for quite some time. And I, I suspect what's happened here is that they were just waiting for free or open air time that the report's delivery grants them to then be able to start pushing this through Congress. Now, from a from the perspective of a aspiring uranium producer or explorer for that matter, it's obviously great news. Uh, the amount of green tape that had built up during the previous administration was significant. Some of it uh, you would argue is necessary and, and good for both the environment and the industry. And from an industry perspective, the last thing we want to see is companies not being um, appropriately regulated so I do hope that these actions are measured and appropriate in the circumstances and they reduce unnecessary green tape rather than reducing protection of the environment per se. But nonetheless, it's good news for those players and uh, it also just continues to put this issue onto the agenda, which is a good thing in general for, for our sector. Yeah, I mean, obviously, in a wider context, it wasn't just talking about uranium, you know, it was talking about, you know, lots of different... Uh, commodities where, you know, I think they, they talked about a list of sort of 50 commodities, um, sorry, maybe 48 commodities um, of which, you know, they had to import in varying degrees, 18 of which 100% were imported. And, you know, some some, some great numbers in, in, in there as well. So it makes you realise that perhaps the, the US mining sector does need a boost, does need some love and attention. And it seems to be getting it off the back of not just the nuclear field working group, um, report, but lots of other impetus, which, again, coming up in an election year was probably always going to happen because you've got to win some votes. Um, be nice to sort of see how these things actually manifest themselves down the line. But, you know, the uranium sector, I guess, will hope that the market starts taking note of, of them in particular. Look, I think it goes a little bit further than an election year. Um, I think we will see coming out of all of the different implications of COVID-19, I think what we will see is increased protectionism and a slowing down of globalization more generally. And this is a combination of no doubt the election year, the Sino-US trade war, 
but also some positioning for a restriction in trade because of those dynamics. So those minerals that the US uh, imports very significantly, um, there are examples where they're imported from China where the US is very vulnerable, of course, but there's other examples, niobium being a good one, where um, the importation is from um, countries that are on very good terms with the US, they're just extremely concentrated. And these issues have been flagged through strategic minerals reports, both by the US um, Geological Bureau, but also um, in the EU. And these, these things were flagged 10 years ago, but we haven't really seen substantive measures taken to really protect these economies from their lack of diversity on their own production. And that's the sort of inactivity that will catch economies napping if there is indeed a strong move towards protectionism and also towards the slowing of globalisation and a restriction of trade. Good point. And again, I think maybe worthy of a conversation another day because that's a, that's a nice big juicy topic right there because I think the implications of some of the actions that we are seeing with the, certainly from the US at the moment, certainly language, is going to have a, a huge impact on the way that other countries are going to have to start to think something that was you know four years ago i think inconceivable in some cases um but let's move on to this other big topic because this kind of threw the market somewhat the um e, the eia um uranium marketing annual report the numbers in there i think shocked some people i think they were hoping to see that the cupboards were bare and uh, the cupboards aren't bare, it would seem. But again, what, what was your take on, the, on the, the, what you saw? Yes, the report came out and uh, it did catch uh, some people by surprise because they were expecting a decrease. And I was in that category. What we saw was a small increase in the total composition of inventories held by US utilities and a decrease in the total inventories held by US utilities and US producers of those uh, nuclear fuels. So in rough terms, what we've got is an increase in U308 of about 5 million pounds. So to put that in perspective, at the end of 2018, the US utilities uh, amongst all of the different forms of nuclear fuel had total inventories of, of 111 million pounds. And that's against an annual consumption of about 50 million pounds. So just over two years, which when you think that the fuel cycle itself takes about two years to move from U308 to UF6 to enriched UF6 back into an oxide and then fabricated into fuel rods, um, they were leaving themselves very little manoeuvrability if their only option for restocking was to go to the beginning of that fuel cycle and buy U308 and carry that U308 all the way through the fuel cycle. So what we've now seen is that number of 111 million pounds increase uh, to 112,800, so 1.6 million pounds. Not that big a deal um, unless you were expecting or hoping another big drop, which is what we had between uh, 2017 and 2018. Now, what I find interesting, first, the first comment that I'd make is, um, although I expected the number to go down um, and it by a bit and it went up by a bit, it really isn't a big deal. We're talking about a small number of pounds in the overall context of the market. But understanding the composition of these pounds 
um, generates far more interest and I think gives us far more clues as to how the market's operating at the moment than simply looking at one of those headline numbers. So what we've got is U308 going up significantly, about five million pounds. And that's a bit that was surprising uh, when all you um, have access to is perhaps the summary numbers. What we know about this is that um, a large number of pounds were bought in the spot market at the end of 2018. That's when the uranium price was lifting substantially. Um, shortly after Cameco put MacArthur River onto indeterminate care and maintenance, and um, they, that volume for 2018 uh, was about 88 million pounds through the spot market with significant uh, reactor or utility participation. What would have happened is the vast majority of those pounds purchased in the spot market would only have settled for delivery in 2019. So what we've got here is something of a smoothing effect between 2017 and 2018, there was a fairly dramatic uh, fall in U308. Um, and that was smoothed by those deliveries uh, taking place in 2019, which then increased that number. So that's the first thing to understand. The second thing is just talking to people inside the industry, um, there seems to be a view that one utility in particular had bought quite aggressively and opportunistically in the spot market when prices were low. Um, that is also going to distort those numbers to a significant extent. And if you'd taken that one utility's numbers or its aggressive spot buying out, then that would all but even out that U308 number. So that one utility, from what I understand, is a substantial proportion of those five million pounds where the U308 price has gone up. So for those two reasons, I don't think it's valid to see this as a, a broad indication of the functioning of the market, the health of the market, uh, the attitudes of US utilities and so on. It's partly a function of how the spot market works or, or how ineffective it is, you could say, and the activities of one particular utility. So the next thing that's interesting is then to look at the downstream nuclear fuel um, components here. So US6, dropped by three million pounds and EUP dropped by four and a half million pounds. And for, for the audience there, they're not measured in million pounds. These are all converted into the equivalent of U308 um, pounds. Um, and then correspondingly, fabricated fuel, so fuel that's in rods ready to go into reactors, increased by about four million pounds. So what to understand there? First of all, the increase in four million pounds in fabricated fuel is not surprising in the least because we've got quite a glut of refueling outages coming up in the spring and then the fall uh, of 2020. So the utilities would have needed to finish 2019 with strong levels of fabricated fuel so that they could do that uh, refueling. So that I would have totally expected to see. The US6 and the EUP dropping, that is indicative of the tightening of those markets that we've discussed before and also reflected in the, uh, in the price of conversion, for example. Uh, and then if you look at the uh, supplier inventories, they dropped by 5 million pounds, although the supplier uh, numbers of U308 only dropped by about a million pounds, even less than a million pounds. So what that's telling me is we've got utility downstream uh, dropping 
and also supplier downstream dropping as well. So those two numbers together indicate a, quite a significant tightening of UF6 and EUP within the US market. And when you add those numbers together, um, that's close to 20% of uh, annual consumption that's tightened in that way. So in summary, um, lots of interest from it and lots of indicators. And uh, I would have liked to have seen it drop by a couple of million pounds as a whole, rather than go up by a couple of million pounds. But when you do add back those producer changes, um, the total number of both uh, utilities and producer inventory contracted by about three million pounds, which is reflective of what we understand, which is an overall contracting in inventory around the globe. So what does this now tell us? Because like I say, I keep saying, I can't believe how opaque this is. Opaque is the key word for this industry. Um, it, what does it tell us about how long utilities can keep going without necessarily being impacted by, you know, obviously supply disruption because of COVID um, and, and, and more, more generally, you know, um, with, with production when things do come back online. Can they, can they string this out to the end of 2021 before they come back into the market? Because if I look at the long-term forecast from, you know, UXC and, and TRATAC and so forth, you're, you know, we're talking 2021, 2022 numbers of, you know, below 40. I mean, what's that? That's, that is a big impact for uranium juniors hoping to get into production and get finance to be able to try and get into production sometime soon. So again, what, what's, your, what's your take on timing now that you've seen these numbers? Well, what it tells us is US utilities across all of their components of nuclear fuel have still only got just over two years of inventory. That leaves them very exposed to a shortage which could be generated by geopolitical reasons, it could be generated by um, other commercial reasons. And in particular, it leaves them very exposed to a shortage of EUP or UF6. And the reason I say that is two and a, two and a bit years does sound like a lot of time, but not if you have to go through the entire nuclear fuel cycle. So if there's a shortage, for whatever reason, they have about 12 million pounds collectively across the whole industry that gives them that buffer if they can't buy EUP or UF6 in the marketplace. So that leaves them vulnerable. And so it tells me two things. It means that this sector is well set up for some form of catalyst. And you know, given what we've been talking about, there's every chance we'd see a ge geopolitical catalyst here. And it also tells me that this sector and the US sector in particular remains ripe for a re-evaluation of risk management and procurement strategies. Um, carrying that little inventory, given the amount of risk that's out there to supply in the sector, both commercial and geopolitical, seems to me to be bordering on uh, irresponsible. And I think uh, there, there's, in my opinion, there's gotta be some realization generally speaking amongst the utilities that they need to manage their risk in a different way. And it's gonna come from all sorts of different directions. We've talked about the carry trade uh, diminishing. So that was one of the, the key risk mitigants that the utilities could use. They could just maintain their current inventory level knowing that they can buy on the carry trade for delivery in one or two years time. Um, the other risk mitigant that they were able to use is to buy EUP uh, 
six months out of when they needed to fabricate rather than buying U308 one and a half years out of when they needed to fabricate. But if any of those risk mitigations fall away, and I think both of those will become less available over the next year, the utilities will have to go back to using U308 as their primary risk mitigation via long-term contracting. And I think that's the setup that we're all looking for by the end of the year. That's the US numbers, but the EU numbers, when are they due? If they don't come out next week, they should come out the week after. So very imminent. Right. And do we expect to see the same sorts of uh, things? I mean, uh, I know we talked last week about, you know, they recommended that they have three years worth of inventory, but is, th is that the case or is that just a recommendation? Uh, I'd expect that to be the case. So I'd expect to see stable numbers out of the EU. Um, any significant build-ups, I think, will be disappointing and any significant drawdowns will be interesting. Okay, okay. Well, look, um, I, th I think we maybe need to wrap it up there because I know you, you've got to get off and, and serve I, unfortunately. So I do enjoy these conversations. But um, just the last thought there. Obviously, we've seen what gold's doing in the market. People are getting very excited. Lots of projects getting financed. Um, Silver, too, actually. has had a couple of very good weeks. Um, what would you say to people looking at uranium? Because it's been a roller coaster in the last three months. Well, it has been a roller coaster, but that's been driven by broader equity sentiment. But what we've seen in the sector is, again, it hasn't been spectacular in the last week, but uranium price has ticked up a touch. We've got a uranium price that's on a generally upward trajectory with a very, very strong setup for later in the year based on fundamentals. So I still think when you look at how underpriced uranium equities are at the moment, particularly on ASX, they didn't have the lift this week that the, most of the North American stocks had after the uh, sanctions waiver announcement or speculation by the Washington Post. So ASX in particular, the equities are still very, very good buying for investors that are prepared to hold to the end of the year and perhaps into next year to see those fundamentals work out. So for anyone out there who's buying in the market today, good luck to them. And I think they're doing the right thing. That's, 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 a, that's a good point. Actually, we're, we're speaking to someone later today about um, irrational exuberance um, as part of, uh, you know, investment, investment rationale. And uh, I am looking forward to that. But I think that has a large bearing on what you've just said with regards to, you know, place your bets based on fundamentals not on the psychology of the market. I'm not seeing any exuberance in uranium at the moment. So <laughs> by definition, there's no irrational exuberance. <laughs> well, I, yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, well, look, I, I will uh, look forward to catching up with you next week. It's been a sort of, another sort of surprising week in the world of uranium. I know it seems a little bit macro at the moment. There's some great um, stories out there. Uh, you know, people getting people getting financed, getting, getting some money through the door. Um, a little, little bit of a waiting game. You guys are good. You're, you're fully cashed up down there at Bannerman, aren't you? How are things progressing? Yeah, we're, we've got a couple of years of runway and lots of things that uh, we can do to add value right at the moment. So Beautiful. Fun. Beautiful. Good man. Okay, buddy. Well, I'll let you go and uh, uh, have a great weekend. Thanks, Matt. Great to chat again. Look forward to next week. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.